Hello, good day, and welcome to EdTech Innovators. It's Pete here. It's an Aussie special this week, in case you haven't noticed. This week's questions are, how do you teach kids to learn to code? What are the differences between Australia and the UK in terms of EdTech? How do you bring textbooks to life? And how do you teach with Triptico, especially if you're teaching Japanese in Australia? So we have Hannah Jensen from Pogo, James Curran from Grok Learning, David Sherwood from Biblio, and Jan Charmer. I hope you enjoy. Hi Pete, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I was lucky as both a, a student and teacher in Australia. Um, I had a great deal of access to technology-based resources uh, growing up. Um, as a Year 9 student in 2002, which was nearly 20 years ago, um, I was learning to code. And then as a teacher, all classrooms were equipped with interactive whiteboards. Um, and thanks to a government grant in 2011, every student I taught had a school laptop which I would bring to each lesson. Now, Australia had invested a great deal in promoting learning technology, so it came as a bit of a shock when I started teaching in the UK and had to revert to overhead projectors and PowerPoint as major ICT teaching tools. So I think in a way, though, this was a good learning experience for me. Hello, James Curran from Grok Learning speaking to me um, all the way from Australia. We do have a few uh, listeners in Australia, of course, but uh, welcome to our Tech Innovators. Hi, Pete. Thanks for inviting me on your show. Absolute pleasure. And uh, it is eight o'clock in the morning in the UK. And um, so this time difference is, uh, is, is insane. It's the end of your working day, or is it the end of your working day? Uh, well, I, usually I'd be the, the end of my working day. I'd be swinging by daycare now or after school care, sorry, to um, collect my seven-year-old after school normally at this time. But um, in our crazy COVID-19 times, uh, my, my work day and my partner's work day have shifted so that she basically does the morning work shift and I do the afternoon work shift. So I'll be finishing a bit after six, but my commute is now literally down the stairs um, and into the dining room for kitchen uh, for dinner um, if I'm not the one cooking. So, um, yeah, a, a bit of a changed world, but normally I'd still be going around five o'clock, yeah. Yeah, and what's the traffic like on the stairs? <laughs> well, you know, it's the wrong time. If there's a run for the toilet, which is right next to the study, you know, you can get caught in the stampede, um, but normally uh, normally pretty quiet. Yeah, potential stair rate there, isn't it, I think, as well. <laughs> And um, what's the um, lockdown situation in, in Australia then? Because I was, I was looking at the television news in the UK yesterday and in Spain, of course, they started there and are tentatively allowing uh, younger children out for a little bit for a, for a walk to get some fresh air, which is you know, starting to you know, hopefully ease the uh, social distancing to an extent. But what's, uh, how tight is the lockdown in, in Oz at the moment? Well, um, in Australia... It's it's not on the the scale that it um, has been in the in the UK and in parts of Europe. I mean, Australia has been extremely as uh, extremely lucky on a number of fronts. First of all, being an island a long way from everyone else is not a bad thing in a time like this. Um, secondly, uh, I think our government, uh, federal and state governments, took action early earlier in the curve than other places in the world, and so. Uh, you know, our number of deaths at the moment is only heading just towards 90, I think, um, which is on a completely different scale to many countries, even other countries of a similar population size to Australia. Um, so our restrictions at the moment 
are that their um, schools are open, but they're discouraging uh, kids from going to school who can learn at home. That does vary on a state-by-state -state basis. So um, New South Wales, where I am, um, is currently saying that for the first few weeks of term two, there'll be only um, kids who absolutely need to go to school. And then the expectation is that kids will be going to school for one day a week for, the, for four weeks and then two days a week for four weeks. And then we'll have a, another term break um, and then we'll be back to regular schooling in term three. Um, whether that happens or not is, is hard to say. Um, whatever happens, we know that it's going to be a challenging and disrupted environment for, for teachers to be working in if they've got a large number of kids still operating at home and also having to teach in the classroom at the same time. Uh, that is going to be extremely challenging um, for them to manage. Mm. Okay, and we were saying before we started recording as well that in terms of um, the structure of your day and your working practice that there hasn't been a radical change since, since COVID, has there? No, so um, I guess first of all, both in Grok Learning and the Australian Computing Academy, which is a centre at the University of Sydney that I run, um, our team um, is actually quite used to working online. We've got um, staff around uh, multiple cities in Australia and we've actually got a staff member in, um, uh, in the UK as well. So being on Zoom is a thing that we've been doing for years and uh, we've, we've got a pretty good pattern of working in that kind of way. Um, my other half is an academic at Sydney Uni as well. Uh, she typically gets into work at 7.30 in the morning and finishes about one o'clock and I start at one o'clock and go through to about six and then um, I do the whole evening routine, get our son to bed, uh, and then do a little bit more work in the evening from you know nine to 11 or 12. Uh, and sometimes depending on who I've got meetings with, I might be in the middle of a Zoom conference at uh, one o'clock in the morning with uh, our colleagues in the UK, or you know if I'm talking to uh, other potential customers in the US or elsewhere, then you know I can have a 1 a.m. meeting, that's not unusual for me. So really COVID-19 hasn't enormously changed things on that front for us, which I'm immensely grateful for. Yeah, it's reassuring, isn't it, I think. And um, I think you are obviously aware of um, the fact that in, in countries like the UK, what happened was the government said, right, all schools are closed immediately, right, get on with it. And, and everything's going to be pushed online indefinitely. And uh, as you can imagine, um, many tech companies are having to respond to that really, really rapidly. And uh, with, with varied levels of success, of course. Um, yeah, well, I think, I mean, the um, uh, EdTech is... Uh, it, it, it's both a, a challenge and an opportunity, but also a, a rapid and sobering experience of what is actually achievable with EdTech and the importance of the, the, the classroom experience mm -hmm. and the fact that you know, uh, despite selling EdTech in Grok Learning, I've never felt that EdTech was the total and complete answer to um, education and anyone that's selling it on that basis really doesn't understand the importance of things that happen in the classroom. So um, uh, I think on the one hand, lots of people have suddenly been brought into EdTech platforms and I'm talking even just very simple starting points. So many schools just getting the, the last of their reluctant teachers to actually sign into Google Classroom for the first time. Um, through to schools that are already doing quite sophisticated things that had a fairly straightforward transition to 
um, uh, remote learning. Um, and then uh, again, from a, you know, things like a video conferencing perspective, suddenly setting up protocols for what's reasonable in terms of video conferencing with students. Should the students be in? Should the students not be in? Um, you know, should there be a second teacher there all of the time? There, there's a lot of things that we've had to rapidly come up with some policies uh, in a way that we'd normally spend, you know, six months thinking about and writing a white paper and going through various bits of government. Suddenly, you know, teachers and departments have had to make decisions in, you know, a fortnight or, uh, as you said, in the UK tomorrow. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Okay, let's get on to what you said before about teacher, how important it is um, to have a teacher in a room and to have that, that teacher experience, if you like. Um, so in terms of um, coding, what, one of the things I like about the uh, Grok Learning website and the, you know, the offer, if you like, that's available and the activities that are available is that it, you know, this, it seems to be grounded in, in um, sound pedagogy and, and fun interactive learning. Um, so what would you say to this sort of you know, provocative question? that um, why, why do kids need to learn to code? Because it, it's miserable doing coding all the time. <laughs> it's still a bit well, I guess I don't mean it, but, but what would you say? No, no, it's, no it's, a, it's, it's a great question. I think the, the, the first thing for me is that, um, uh, to be clear, we're not teaching coding to every child with the expectation that they will all become software engineers. Mm. The world doesn't need that many software engineers. Um, but uh, there's an increasing number of domains where having the ability to write some code, to analyze some data, um, to automate some process, uh, and so on makes a difference. So I like to think in terms of what I call all of the empirical domains. So any domain that makes decisions um, or does analysis on, on data. So every scientist, every engineer, um, every economist, um, every business person, uh, every medical researcher, um, and even increasingly in the, the, the social sciences and humanities, we're seeing that data uh, is a significant part of how people uh, do their work. Mm. And having the skills to both understand data and its um, strengths and weaknesses and the limitations on how it's being collected and how it's processed and so on, it's just increasingly important. I mean, I, I'm a... Uh, you know, computer science academic at Sydney Uni. My other half is an astrophysicist. Um, uh, she works on telescopes sitting in the Western Australian desert that produce so much data that the only way to actually um, use those telescopes is entirely by writing code sitting on a supercomputer. Well, 30 years ago, you could be an astronomer um, and do most of your analysis in Excel if you really wanted to. The, the scale of the data and the kinds of things that we want to process these days mean that she gets to write more Python code on a day-to-day -day basis than I do, and the whole Grok Learning platform is written in Python. So um, uh, I think that's the first thing, is that there are uh, just an increasing number of careers where if you want to be the best X you can be, having coding uh, and data analysis amongst your skill sets is going to be really important to be great at X. Mm. Um, and there's just a very wide range of X's that, that are part of that. Yeah. But I think the, 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 the second kind of part for me is that the question I like to ask in return is why do we teach kids algebra? Mm. Yes. Um, you know, algebra is a thing that the majority of people uh, learn in, you know, uh, depending on which country you're in, 
uh, top of primary, uh, start of secondary school. Um, and for a large part of the population, it's not something they enjoy uh, enormously. Um, and the, usually the next time they come across it after school is when their kids bring it home and they remember with horror, um, uh, you know, the, the, the PTSD comes back from when they did it at school. Now, the reason we teach things like algebra is it's a skill that, that first of all, takes a long time to develop. You can't, you know, arrive at first year university and say, right, we're going to teach algebra now and expect to get, you know, to the point we want to at the end of a physics degree, for example. So we start early in school because it's a skill that we need to build up. And also um, the majority of other areas of mathematics build on top of that. Um, I see that um, coding and data analysis is the, is the new algebra in that sense. If you want to... Um, uh, understand something else more deeply. For example, say you want to teach probability in maths. Being able to run some really simple simulators uh, that you can modify the code for to understand things like the Monty Hall problem, for example. Um, you can actually write 20 lines of Python code and produce an empirical solution to something that um, uh, stumped uh, world-famous statisticians uh, for many years. So, so I see really as coding as a tool that we eventually want to be able to use within other subjects and build on top of, um, but you can only do that if you, if you develop those skills over time. Mm, yeah. and I suppose the, the, the third dimension, the final one, is that um, I really see uh, learning to program uh, is as much about learning to debug as it is about learning to program in the first place. Almost nobody is lucky enough to write code that's bug free. In fact, if you do, it's probably because you've only ever copied Hello World meticulously out of a textbook and that's it. Um, so uh, debugging is, is all about trying to understand where your assumptions have gone wrong um, and to look for the underlying algorithms um, and go, okay, my understanding of this algorithm doesn't match what's actually happening in this computer here. Somewhere there's something that's, there's a, there's a mismatch here. And I, I feel like, uh, to me, this, this is where my real passion for computing for everyone comes from, is if we could get every child, no matter whether they're going to become a Bricky's laborer or a brain surgeon, to see the sets of algorithms that they... Uh, execute in their life all of the time, identify where there might be opportunities for those algorithms to be you know, faster or more efficient or healthier um, and so on. And then also develop the skills of debugging to go, you know what, I've, I've been doing this based on a whole bunch of assumptions. And now, I, now that I look at this more carefully, some of those assumptions either um, are no longer true or have never been true. Um, uh, then I think that that could actually make a big difference to any kind of job. So I, I really see, uh, you know, people often talk about um, coding, teaching problem solving skills, and it does, but I think it really, that has to come from an understanding that algorithms aren't just things that are sitting in a computer or running Facebook, um, you know, filtering algorithm or things like that, that they're actually, everything we do in the real world is following a sequence of steps and decisions. And if you can see that at a more abstract level um, and take yourself out of them sometimes, then again, whatever you're doing, I believe you could do it better. Mm. So 
let's start by with uh, making monsters, of course, and, th and things that you have, uh, activities that you have uh, mm -hmm. on Grok Learning, of course. Um, I, th I mean, it seems very democratic what you're, what you're doing here, because on one hand, um, coding seems to, used to be this kind of, you know, dark art, if you like, that not many people could do, but you're taking yeah. it down to um, more accessible levels, aren't you, for the young kids, a bit like, a bit like Raspberry Pi, would you say? Yeah, I think uh, I would think that's definitely um, the the goals of the the Raspberry Pi. Uh, I mean, I think that Raspberry Pi has had the goal of uh, democratizing the hardware by you know making a pretty amazing bit of kit for uh, a very low price, and I mean each subsequent version gets more and more powerful and stays at a pretty low price point these days, um, which is which is great. I think what we're trying to do is democratize the concepts by getting them into uh, into schools and into curricula um, earlier so that kids can start seeing the algorithm. So on one minute, you might be uh, busy learning about a sequence of steps and decisions to build your own monster. The next minute, you might realize that that silly spelling rule in English, I before E except after C, and then of course all of those other exceptions to that exception, um, is actually also um, a, a bit of a complicated algorithm, but you're still learning those different algorithms in class in all of those other learning areas, as well as starting to develop some skills in debugging, to read the question carefully and do exactly what the question asks you to do. Um, and and generally starting to develop some comfort in, and confidence that you can write code. Mm. Yeah, and um, I mean, I think that it, very often you, you read about uh, in academia, if you like, you read about this notion that um, in neoliberal culture, there's an increasing datification of, uh, of, of, of the self, you know, of, of, of humans, of, of the culture as well. Um, but I, I don't see that on, in what you're trying to achieve. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, we our, our goal is to collect data to to first of all give back to the students their the, their best sense of where they're they're up to, mm. um, but then also to be able to feed that to their uh, for their teachers so that they can see best progress. And I guess one of the you know some of the features that we've been racing through implementing in the last few weeks to support um, schools in coronavirus lockdown is um, making it more visible more uh, more rapidly so essentially real-time access to the data of exactly what their students are working on which of course if you're in the classroom is exactly what the teacher has by wandering around uh, you know checking where everyone is up to and you know giving Johnny a, a uh, pat on the back when they've fought their way through a challenging problem and got it wrong half a dozen times and 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 kept going so for us really all of the data we're collecting is for the service of the the students themselves um and and the people that are that are teaching them we 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 have no interest in um uh, in doing anything more broadly than that i suppose the the, the one other exception to that would be for us to also learn how to make our courses better. So, you know, we can see some spots where there's a particularly challenging question. A lot of kids have tried it, but not as many have passed it relative to the questions before and after. And that's an opportunity for us to use that analytics to improve our own teaching, which is, is the great benefit of teaching Hello World to, you know, a million students rather than, you know, 20 or 30 sitting in the classroom with you at one time. 
Mm. Yeah, and of course, it, that even before you give the, uh, you, sorry, you uh, crunch the numbers, you know, that you uh, analyze the um, data of the, of the achievement of the students, you, you're providing live feedback, aren't you? And I'm, I'm old enough to remember the old language labs when, you know, you can, your teacher could uh, sort of bark down your, into your headphones that you're doing something wrong and what you should do better. So uh, yeah. any live feedback has to be has to be a welcome thing. Yeah, and I think, I mean, for me, one of the things about learning programming is that it, um, the computer slaps you in the face pretty much straight away when you get something wrong. So it, it's not a subject where you can go, well, I think that essay is kind of all right. We'll see what the teacher thinks about it. Every time you produce a syntax error or um, your code doesn't do what you want, it, it's, you get that feedback immediately. As a student, you know something's wrong. What you don't often get by, you know, just the Python interpreter itself is any help whatsoever in how to actually uh, fix that mistake. So really, I think what we've done is taken the advantage of computing, which is the fast response time, um, and then couple it with much more meaningful feedback than you would typically get um, uh, either from the, you know, the interpreter or compiler for most programming languages. And then when your program runs, that we, you know, we're going to check it very rigorously to ensure that your code actually does what you think it does. Mm. Okay, so I mean, this is lovely. I could talk to you all day. How do you feel um, the things are going in terms of your reach then of the product? So, um, do you have lots of international clients and the schools saying very positive things about it as well? Um, yeah. Look, I think we. Um, we could always do a, do a lot better in terms of, of reach. So um, I, I hear a lot of teachers that have discovered us for the first time um, on a channel that I think, but, you know, we've been sending messages down this channel for, you know, six, seven years kind of thing. Um, so reaching schools and reaching teachers is, is always um, a difficulty. And there's, there's so many, I mean, EdTech has just gone ballistic. Um, and uh, coding has always been a pretty popular thing in the in the professional learning space, and is increasingly uh, popular in the in the school space. Um, so, so that's always a bit of a challenge for us. And I think our approach, uh, while I think our activities are fun and engaging, I don't think they look as much uh, as a game as some of our uh, competitors. And I think our our approach has very much been what we ultimately want you to do is develop real practical skills that you can apply to solving real problems. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I think the teachers that understand that framework and do the classroom work of putting it in context are extremely happy uh, with us as a product and the level of engagement they get out of their students and the progress that they make through the activities and so on. Um, I think that it's it's a bit of a in some ways it's a bit of a harder ask for a teacher who thinks all right well I've bought Grok so I'm just going to log all my students in and let them go. Mm -hmm. um, that that's never been uh, our approach. Like I said earlier, I believe that classroom teachers are an essential part of the education mix, and I see our job is to um, uh, provide content and support and feedback in places where we can do that automatically and then leave teachers to do the bit, bit that they can do best, you know, which is everything from setting the scene for their students, um, uh, providing them with the, the best kind of 
uh, feedback and an encouragement um, when they're stuck. So we don't do a lot on the gamification front because we think that um, you know teachers can choose what kind of motivation framework they want, and some really want completely intrinsic motivation, and others are very happy for extensive extrinsic um, motivation. So um, yeah, we. Uh, I, I'm, I'm quite happy with where we're at in some ways, but I'm also extremely ambitious for where we could be in the future in terms of, in terms of better feedback. Um, and one of, as I said before, one of the great things about having so many submissions from students from around the world is that we can start analyzing that data and working out where, um, where we can do better. So an example of that that we implemented last year was what we call um, interactive slides so for for several years school teachers were telling us things like oh, i can never get our kids to read the notes they just want to start the problem and then they get frustrated because um they haven't actually read the material they need to understand how to solve the problem uh, and i know that our own experience when we have live tutoring on the site the first thing the tutors ask is you know have you read the previous notes so what we did is we added some interactive steps to the to the slides themselves and so you would um, uh, for example if there's a snippet of code the interactive steps might require you to run the code then modify it in some way and run it again and those three interactive steps would be um, quite you know bold and visible on the page they go green when they complete and the slide itself would go green in the same way that a problem typically does um, when you get it right and uh, so that change has had a significant impact on the portion of kids that are actually prepared to answer a question when they first hit it because their their enthusiasm for um, completing things means that they're more inclined to complete the reading and interacting with the slides of course we then had a small group of teachers say the reverse that they actually you know found that the kids then started relying on those steps more um, so you know getting the balance in those things is is one of the great things about building a system and getting lots of feedback from teachers that it can continue to evolve um, as we learn how to do things better mm. It's interesting that you mentioned gamification as well. You know, the, the, the pressure is not to gamify the content as much. Sorry, the assessment of it, uh, because there's lots of you know, games involved in creating the content in the first place. But the, there can be a competitive element, can't there? Yeah, so um, we, do, we do have some competitions. So we run a, a, a thing that's mostly here in Australia, but um, kids overseas can get involved as well, called the NCSS challenge, um, uh, which is a, mostly a Python and, and Blockly um, uh, learn to program uh, competition over five weeks. And in fact, competitions have been our entire heritage. So Grok really started out of, a, out of running the NCSS challenge at the University of Sydney for many years beforehand. And it kind of just got too big to keep doing it as a side activity inside the uni. Um, and the original premise of the competitions was the idea that there were already many competitions out there at school and university level for, for programming, but they were all about just testing whether someone was already in the programming clubhouse or not. Um, and I was dissatisfied with this because I wanted us to have a competition where you could join the clubhouse essentially by doing it right so how um, and so rather than having a one-off comp just to prove what you know or 
or prove that you didn't know as much as you thought, um, that we would have a competition where over the five week period, you would actually learn to program at the same time as competing. Um, now, Grok actually does that over, you know, we've, we've expanded that from this one um, competition, the NCSS challenge into to multiple. So we do it for web development. So our next competition that's um, coming up is called WebComp. And it's a similar model, four weeks of content followed by a design competition in the, in the fifth week. And, you know, we find that schools and by and large students really enjoy competitions. It, it gives a bit of a focus. During the, the period where we run competitions, we have uh, either paid and volunteer tutors um, on the platform helping students when they get stuck. So if the automated marking is, is not enough and the feedback from the automatic marking is not enough for you to quite understand what you need to do, you can get in touch with a tutor who will um, help you uh, get unstuck. And um, uh, th those competitions really work quite well. Uh, in engaging students. The, the thing is you don't actually need much, you know, almost can just call it a competition and it makes a difference. So, so we have leaderboards um, and that's it. We, we do have certificates at different levels, but those certificates aren't about rankings. Those certificates are just about, you know, you've got a high distinction or a distinction at a particular cutoff of the number of questions you've solved. Um, but that, that little bit of a competitive element really, I think, helps engage students and teachers. And, and, and it gives computing teachers a, a thing for them to go and you know, brag about and get some of their kids up on stage for school assembly when there's typically not a lot of that in, in um, technologies compared to you know, sport or uh, you know, science and maths, at least in Australia, have a lot more competitions out there and a lot more visibility. So mm. that's... Um, yeah, we, we, we love our competitions. They're part of our DNA. Well, and they can involve the whole family too, can't they? Because, for example, if, if, if you've made the best virtual pet and were rewarded for that, that would be a lovely thing for the whole family. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, when, we're, when we're doing um, competitions, we usually have multiple streams running at the same time. So for web comp, we have beginners, intermediate and advanced. And the advanced stream is the one where you... Um, start learning some JavaScript, for example. And in the NCSS challenge, we have um, a newbies, uh, two beginner streams, one in Python and one in Blockly with exactly the same questions and then an intermediate and advanced stream. And so it means that, um, first of all, families do often do it um, in the evening, different uh, age kids or different experienced kids working in different streams. It also means that a classroom teacher can have the same group of students uh, operating on quite different levels in their class and school computing teachers will tell you that differentiating for uh, the vast range of experience from you know I've hardly used a computer through to I've submitted patches to the Linux kernel um, uh, is, is quite a challenge for, for any computing teacher so we found those multiple streams available at once suits both home and um, and the classroom Mm, interesting. Yeah, the differentiation is such a, an issue where I suppose the different levels of interest and ability um, can vary wildly um, for both very young kids and for older kids. So I'd imagine there's quite a lot of kids who are about 14 who know nothing about coding or is, or is it different in Australia? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, our, our goal with the new 
uh, well, I should, it's not exactly new. We still call it new because schools are still grappling with, um, with how to teach it. But um, currently I would say there's a large portion of 14 year olds that have had very limited experience. We are hoping in the next few years with um, every Australian child learning to uh, do visual programming between year three and year six, um, and then general purpose programming in something like Python or JavaScript in year seven and eight. That is, that is the compulsory part of the digital technologies curriculum here in Australia. Um, so we're hoping that will change in a few years. And of course, we're, you know, we're trying to make Grok um, one of the ways that, that teachers can, can teach that material. Um, but we're still going to have a lot of kids that are having very different experience. I mean, if you teach at the beginning of high school and you've got a bunch of feeder primary schools, then those schools are probably going to be doing um, computing in a very different way to each other. Uh, and it's hard to bring all of that together at the beginning of high school. Well, I really hope people listening to this will, will check out the website. Is it the best way to get in touch with you through the website or through uh, Twitter or what, what do you think? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, definitely the best way to get in touch um, is through the website, groklearning.com. Um, you can send um, email to our support channel, support at groklearning.com. The, the best thing, the best way of getting in touch with me directly is actually to send email to support. Um, the good thing about that is my team is um, uh, very religious about ensuring I answer anything that um, that goes via there. If, uh, if it goes to Twitter or anywhere else, um, then um, uh, then it's a bit more hit and miss. So yeah, definitely best to go to the Grok Learning website. Um, it's worth actually pointing out at the moment that um, uh, for all of Australian term two, so that takes you through to the 5th of July, um, the Grok Learning platform and all of its content, both the, uh, the existing materials that you would have seen freely available um, and also all of the courses and competitions and uh, material on things like cybersecurity in Australia are going to be freely available worldwide. Mm -hmm. um, we've also put on tutors um, to be available um, uh, throughout this period, not just when we're running competitions. So there is literally no better time to go and try Grok uh, for free for, for a period of time, um, both yourself and with your students, um, is give it a go now. Thank you so much. And shout out to Kylie for being so well organized as well when you're talking about your team being religious. Ah, well. yes. Yeah, no, she does a fantastic job. Absolutely. Well, it, it's been wonderful talking to you. It really has, James. Uh, a real pleasure. And I really hope that, uh, that people do become part of your journey because it's, uh, it, it, it's a really well-designed uh, website and so many great activities that people should be trying. So thank you so much. Please uh, hang around and we'll have a quick chat and I'll stop yep. recording cool. in a minute. So thanks again, James. Next, it's Hannah Jensen again from Opogo to tell us about their social platform. A social platform that offers the global education community a safe place to share ideas, best practice, access education content, lesson plans, collaborate and network with other education professionals. In addition to offering relevant uh, L&D training opportunities is what we are currently building at Apogo. Um, teachers are generally community-minded people and love to share with others, which is why we've built a platform centred around this. Uh, Apogo is a community platform built to support the education community. 
If the current COVID-19 situation has taught us anything, it's the urgent need for such a community to exist. So if you'd like to check out our growing community and uh, our series of upcoming L&D events, webinars um, and unlimited content, please click on the link that Pete shares at the end of the podcast. Thank you. So, so BibliU is an educational learning platform focused on universities and university students. And what we do is make learning content more accessible and more affordable to students. So I'm talking about textbooks, monographs, courseware, etc. And really addressing that problem that I felt myself as a university student a few years ago here in uh, Oxford and then the same in, in Western Australia, that books are far too expensive and they're providing you with an outdated form of media that really doesn't help as a, as a student when you're looking for quick bits of information to get through your assessments. Mm, yeah, okay. That, that's an issue with being outdated, isn't it really? So uh, what about quality control? How are you going to, uh, how do you uh, maintain quality control? Yeah, that's, that's a, a, a really good point. And, and we work with 2000 publishers and receive a massive variety of, of content from them. Um, and, and even the content itself, I mentioned before, some of it's like research monographs, some of it's like teaching textbooks, some of it's teaching courseware with some software built into it as well. So there's a massive um, spread and the quality varies quite a lot, as you can imagine. Uh, well, I mean, step one is the publishers do the key piece for us. They edit, they make sure what's being put into the system is something that people want to use and teach from, etc. But then step two is on our side. And that's where our engineering team need to run a whole range of tests to ensure that whatever the content we've been sent has been ingested correctly. And importantly, you know, renders and feels like the other content on our platform and the user's getting some sort of uniform, unique experience. And in some cases we have to um, programmatically, you know, correct the content, break it into learn learning objects. And other cases we have to say to the publishers, hey, you know, this, this file needs some amendments. Do you mind sorting this out for us? Oh, okay. So do, do you have a, actually tamper with the actual content of the books that, that you're, um, you're adapting? Yeah, so we, we don't edit, we don't write the content as such. That's all in the publisher's bucket. In mm. terms of making the content more digestible, making it um, more uniform, we do absolutely programmatically. So just talking about the more digestible point, and this ties into what I said at the start about having to an assessment and wanting to just quickly get through it and quickly get information to help you and not necessarily be interested in reading a thousand pages of a textbook. Mm -hmm. And so we have this really powerful search engine and we've ingested all of this different content and the search engine has broken the content down into learning objects or definitions, diagrams, examples, questions, answers, these, these sort of things. And if you search, it will search the full catalog that your university has paid for and provide you with these little snippets. And, and, and you know, in an ideal world, you can make do with the snippets, answer and move forward. Um, of, often, obviously, the, the, the snippet is not enough information and the student will click on the snippet and then explore where that snippet was in the chapter, potentially read that and potentially read surrounding chapters. Mm. And how's that working with Google at the moment? Yeah, that's, that's a, a really good point. So Google obviously has the world's best search engine, I think. Um, fair to say. Um, and the, the difference between what we're doing and what Google is doing is Google has access to all of the information in the world, um, but, but not, uh, I should say, all of the free information in the world. 
but but Google doesn't have all of the, these key paid pieces of information. So a core textbook from Pearson or a courseware from Wiley, Google may have some snippet from it, but it will certainly won't have access to the full text and, and, and the full piece of information. And that's as sort of the opposite of Google, where they're covering all of the free information in the world. We're not covering that at all. Of Google does a great job of that. We cover all of the premium, you know, paid information in the university space. And specifically, we try and have a university built around just the, the content that their professors have recommended to read um, and traditionally students would buy. Mm. So it's curated by the institution and it's the paid information that you can't find on Google, but, but with a sort of Google style search experience around it. Mm, excellent. So uh, what are the uh, most high profile universities that have signed up to this so far? Yeah, so we're working with 41 um, university customers, all, all, all shapes and sizes. We've worked with NYU in the US, we've worked with Oxford in the UK, um, Imperial are one of our bigger customers. And then we have Coventry, they are our, our largest and they cover every student, content for every single student, every course. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so UK, US and a couple in Europe as well. Um, and actually during the coronavirus, um, the, the last couple of weeks, we've had an additional 120 uh, pilots be set up as a direct result of the coronavirus, more institutions going online, more institutions looking for online functionality and content. Yeah, so it's a kind of feast or famine, I think, isn't it, this coronavirus thing for the ad tech companies. So in your case, mm. um, you're in danger of being overwhelmed and <laughs> swamped, I suppose, by, by demand. Uh, agreed, yeah, and actually, we, we, for the first time ever, I mean, as I said, we got 40 customers. So we onboard, um, uh, you know, a few customers. We've been running about three, four years. So if you average that out, you know, we've been onboarding 10 customers a year, but it's not quite accurate. But that gives you an idea of the speed of onboarding. And then suddenly we have 120. And for the first time ever, we had to create a priority plan and say, okay, obviously customers are getting the first priority institutions that we were talking to already get second priority institutions in the UK and the US get third priority so we actually had to rank them because we didn't have enough time to onboard them all on day one which mm. has never happened before so it's a fascinating time yeah very fascinating and are you having conversations yeah. if you have any time which you probably don't but having conversations about how this might look when it all blows over when we're on the other side of the virus well that's a, a really interesting point and I think we see different perspectives on on that but it seems like if you look back to SARS and how that impacted the um, companies and economies in Asia and how it impacted Alibaba specifically the the trends that were accelerated through the coronavirus continued on um, so through SARS continued on after SARS in terms of more people using e-commerce more people using Alibaba to get their product to their customer the, the accelerate the condensed acceleration that happened during that SARS period after SARS obviously slowed, but was still happening. So the trend's still happening, but not at the same rate. Mm. And consequently, a number of companies saw that the surge in demand was great, and a number of those, you know, temporary um, crisis customers stayed on, but a number didn't. And so this is a really interesting thing for us: is of these 120 Corona pilots, um, which are free, by the way. Uh, how many of them are going to stay on? And it, it's a, a difficult question and, it, you know, it requires us to create a strategy around um, 
how we're going to manage this process and, 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 and sort of the return to normal, a strategy around the return to normal. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So the key is getting them hooked in some way, I suppose, if, if that's uh, possible. You'd like to think that they would be pretty much hooked by the time that uh, it all blows over. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, and as I mentioned to you before we jumped on, uh, you know, the, the sooner we can go back to certainty, the better, really. And then EdTech's in an unusual position where Corona has accelerated some things. and It's been a positive in certain aspects. I would still say take certainty any day or, or um, uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a lot better for your mental health for start. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So how's your how's your day to day existence been been different? Um, I mean, here I am sitting in my hot car because of uh, the kids being at home all the time and running around and making it difficult to to make a, yeah. a great podcast. But um, so how's it different for you? Yeah, primarily. I mean, we 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 have a lot of employees that were hundred percent remote anyway, and we've always had a policy whereby anybody can be remote whenever they want. So. We were infrastructure-wise, things were ready to go. I worked from home sometimes, so I carried that on. I did set up a better work-from-home setup, which I'm sure many people have. And the main thing that's changed in my day-to-day is the lack of FaceTime with the key stakeholders in our business. I can't see investors face-to-face. I can't see customers face-to-face. I can't speak at conferences. Um, you know, I can't go to those events to, to, to help represent and help build the business. And, you know, actually, you can do a lot of those things pretty effectively remotely, particularly when all of those people are also 100% remote. Um, but I would say there's something, and, and particularly around building the business, bringing prospective customers on board, there's something magic about a face-to-face that Zoom hasn't quite replaced yet. And, and maybe it will take virtual reality whereby you feel, you literally feel like you're in the same room and you're feel like you're sharing a set, the same experience which you really don't have on zoom mm. um, on zoom you you, I, you see the person and you sh- share the information effectively and you can see their reaction but you don't feel like you're sharing the same experience no, absolutely so yeah and I'd, I'd like to think i'm not being old-fashioned when i say that i want to i want to return to physical conferences and real face-to-face meetings with people i don't know, sense i'm not alone no, I, I don't think that's old-fashioned all i think that's just the fact that zoom and other services haven't reach that level yet and as i said i think it will take vr to the point where the brain finds it somewhat difficult to distinguish between a conference in the vr and a conference in person for us to actually share those experiences because like i'm sitting in my chair you're sitting in your chair it's hard to share an experience in in the traditional conference we might get a coffee or we might do things that feel like a shared experience and even if we had a coffee over the call it just doesn't there's something about it just doesn't feel the same Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's that idea of sharing something, you know, such a social, social thing yeah. or primates do, is it just sharing something yeah. that you consume. So having a coffee is a major part of that really is for the primate And it's population. fascinating. It's like our brain re- like realizes that Zoom's very different to that when in practice, it's kind of the same thing, but the brain's very, like it just realizes that and that shared kind of rapport building just kind of switches off. Mm. Or at least it's not not as active as it would be in a face to face, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So your workload has um, increased considerably then over the last uh, few weeks. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, as I said, we had to put this plan in place to implement a lot of these additional free pilots, um, and and actually have been talking about expanding the team. Well, I know unfortunately a lot of businesses out there are really struggling. We've got furloughing happening and a range of sort of downsizing activities. 
So we're very fortunate in that respect. Uh, we just closed the Series A two, three weeks ago, so that was 10 million US. All right. Um, pipeline, you know, prospective customers for the year looking pretty solid, development team cracking along. But I would say in our sector, and you probably probably heard bits and pieces, you know, universities are certainly at threat if the recruitment, if the student numbers are down in September, which at this point looks more likely than not, um, you know, there could be some serious knock-on effects to us and other companies in the sector. So uh, it's not all rosy, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. And without that certainty, that you can't really uh, be too optimistic, despite the fact that there's been a surge uh, quite recently. So correct. Um, my head of sales puts it very, very well. You know, this is this is my expectation now. But in the times of coronavirus, things change very, very rapidly, and it's not ne necessarily going to be my expectation next week because mm. the information, everything changes so quickly that um, all of these, as you say, all of these expectations and assumptions and models just really need a lot more work and day-to-day -day attention than they normally would. It's really hard to see forward, right? Yeah, absolutely. It really is. And it, it, well, it's been great talking to you. This is my um, second uh, Zoom conference with somebody from Australia, well, who's originally from Australia, you're originally from Australia, but I did have my first Zoom conference this morning with somebody who was in Australia. So um, maybe I'll have you as part of an Aussie special in a couple of weeks' time when the podcast comes out. Oh, you should. There's so many great ed tech companies from Australia. Canopy, they do... Um, they're kind of like a, a Netflix for universities. You've got um, Moodle. Um, these are both from my hometown in, in Perth, actually. Moodle, the learning management system. You've got EBL, who, who did books for libraries. There's a huge number. Uh, Navitas um, do student recruitment. Yeah, for some reason, as I said before, EdTech in Australia is really strong. So uh, an Australian EdTech special would be, uh, would be interesting, no doubt. I will do. And it, it was Grok Learning that I was talking to this morning, coding for kids amongst other things. So um, they're good people to connect with, I would say. Oh, I appreciate that. I'll, I'm going to look them up. Yeah, you should do. Well, thank you very much, David. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you. It really has. And uh, we'll, we'll stay in touch, won't we, of course, and uh, see, how, see how things uh, pan out. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, no, it's, it's been a pleasure being on today. Brilliant. Okay. So I have stopped recording. Hello, my name is Jan Chama and I'm a teacher of Japanese in Australia. I found Triptico to be a really versatile tool, enabling teachers to easily add engaging elements into any type of lesson. The sound effects and movement are fabulous. The feature I have used most frequently is perhaps rather surprising. It is the group creator. It randomly assigns students into groups so that no student is left feeling awkward with no partner. Students actually ask me to use Triptico for this purpose and for that reason alone I would highly recommend the tool. In addition though, I think the beauty of Triptico is in the apparent simplicity. The same list of words, once created by a teacher, can be used in such a variety of ways. It's a real time saver.